Hi, my name's Neil, and we're about to read from the Word of God. This afternoon, we have a few passages from Jonah, and they can be found on page six of your zines. Starting at chapter one, verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now moving to chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust." Now moving to chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Our next reading comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Thanks for uh, leading us in that reading of the Bible, Neil. And... uh, If you are new with us, we've been exploring uh, the Minor Prophets here at church. They are a collection of uh, writers and people in the Old Testament. And indeed, uh, this Sunday, I would suggest that our fifth Minor Prophet, Jonah, uh, is probably the best known but most misunderstood of our Minor Prophets. Uh, The text we're actually reflecting upon today uh, was written, and uh, for those who have been with us for a while, we're getting to know our geography and history very well. Um, This particular text, the book of Jonah, was written to the northern kingdom of Israel, called Israel. Uh, We think it was written around 750 BC, uh, which was actually um, around 30 years before 
the Assyrians came in and invaded Israel. It's really interesting, in in contrast to all other Old Testament prophets, um, the sole focus of Jonah, this text we're looking at today, is on his lived experience, not his message. Uh, It's it's not a sentimental story, uh, nor is it humorous. Rather, it's just told straightforwardly, and it is written to engage our imagination. Um, And because of that, the book of Jonah is really a scenic narrative, where as readers, we're going to find ourselves in four set scenes. And that's how this book plays out. Uh, We're going to find ourselves on a boat. Then we're going to find ourselves in the belly of a fish. Then we're going to find ourselves in a bustling city. And then finally, we're going to be sitting on a hilltop. And the question that this book asks us in the Bible, the question it asks us is this, are we able to embrace the compassion of God? Are we actually capable of embracing and being changed by the compassion and the love of God? And that's a big question. And so as we begin, I'd love to just pray for us that uh, as we begin this journey with Jonah, um, that God might be guiding us and gently leading us, teaching us. So let me pray. Our dear Lord and loving Heavenly Father, I ask now for a powerful work of your Spirit in both our hearts and our minds, that we may know the height and width and depth of your love. Amen. So let's begin our journey with Jonah. Uh, Our first scene takes place on a boat, more specifically on a small boat in rough seas in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And you stop for a second, and the most genuine question is, how do we get here? Why are we sitting on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean in this narrative? And the answer to that actually just comes in the first three verses of the book of Jonah. We read these words, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has confronted me. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. So Jonah is a prophet, uh, which means he is a messenger And understanding this command from God in the opening verses is key, especially two words in the second verse, the words great and the word wickedness. So he says, go to the great city of Nineveh. This is the command for Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their wickedness has confronted me. Now, the Hebrew word for great means not just large, but also valuable important, precious. And the Hebrew word wickedness here translates both as evil, kind of classic, as well as troubled. 
And so, in other words, God is saying to Jonah, go to the large and valuable city of Nineveh and preach against it because I'm both angry at its evil and concerned about the troubles the people are experiencing as a result of that evil. And right here, we find the tension of this entire book, right here, up front, verse 2. God himself looks at the Assyrians, historical context, enemies of Israel, God's people, and he says, I value these people. I see what they are doing to each other, and I want you to go call them to change. Actually, to be fair, Jonah's message is simpler than that. His whole message is in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. We'll get to that. But nonetheless, it is a message that calls for immediate change. Um, Sometimes you hear the phrase, I'm not sure if you've ever heard it, um, if you really love me, you won't ask me to change. Ever heard that phrase? If you really loved me, you wouldn't ask me to change. I want to suggest very humbly this afternoon um, that that particular phrase is a rubbish statement. Uh, Perhaps, as I was reflecting on it, what we are really saying when we use this phrase is, I want to be known and I want to be accepted even with my flaws. I want you to know me and accept me even with my flaws. And that is something which is powerful and good. It is, in fact, the core part of what we call love. To be fully known and to be fully loved uh, is indeed the core experience of Christian faith as we interact with a God who knows us more fully than we know ourselves and loves us. To be known and loved is a deep concept of love itself. But I think we mess up that honest desire that we all have when we mash it in with a rejection to change. Certainly, if I had remained the exact same person, uh, I got married quite late in my sort of mid to late 30s to Naomi, and, um, well, I didn't think it was late, it was normal for me, but, you know, it could be late for some. Um, But if I remained the same man I was after getting married to Naomi as I was before, then my marriage would either be over by now, or we would be incredibly distant. Um, Because real love and transformation often go hand in hand. And the opening shock in the message of Jonah is that God loves and he values the enemies of his people. And he sends Jonah to preach against them so that they may change. And after receiving his message from the Lord, Jonah gets on a boat, our opening scene. And did you notice the repetition of the word Tarshish? Uh, Often repeated two to three times in that opening verse. Have a look at the map in your zines and you'll get an idea of why that is repeated in this narrative. Jonah is not hiding from God. 
he is just outright running away. Uh, to try and convert it roughly to kilometers, Nineveh was roughly 870 kilometers to the northeast of Joppa. Tarshish was roughly 3,400 kilometers to the west. And this is what brings us to our opening scene. We are sitting on a boat sailing west. And we read, if you go through chapter 1, that God whips up a massive storm. And the sailors are trying to correct the ship and secure safety, and there's chaos and fear and worry. And where is Jonah in all of this? Well, we read in chapter 1, Jonah is actually under the deck, sleeping. In other words, in the narrative, he is totally checked out. And we'll come back to why that may be in a moment. But when brought to the upper deck and asked by the other sailors, what is going on? We read in verse 12 of chapter 1 that Jonah takes the blame. He knows, and you can see the map there, he is running away from God. Which, of course, you can't really do because God is everywhere. But nonetheless, Jonah says to these sailors, look, it's probably me. I'm probably the reason for this great storm. Throw me overboard which is really, in the context, kind of a death wish. And we read in chapter 1, the sailors pray for the Lord's forgiveness, then they throw Jonah overboard, the sea goes calm. And then the sailors offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Which, may I say, is a quirky feature of this whole book. Uh, the whole narrative, all the people you least expect to respond positively to God do respond positively. And the person you most expect to respond positively to God doesn't, the prophet. It's this constant interplay through the book of Jonah. Anyway, the curtain goes down on scene one. Scene two opens, Jonah finds himself inside the belly of a fish. We read at the end of chapter 1, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This is a very different scene. I want you to sit with it for a moment. As you imagine this scene, I wonder what you see or feel or hear. It's very different to the chaos of the boat. Isn't it? It's pitch black, perhaps eerie, yet oddly peaceful. There might be slow movement to the left and to the right as the fish is swimming. But everything here in the second scene is different. The energy and the running has been halted. And there is time for honest reflection. This is a very different scene to the opening scene. But whilst we are here in this place... We do need to hit the pause button. We need to ask, what is going on in this second scene? Are we serious? Is Jonah swallowed by a fish? What, what do we do with this as readers? Um, well, I take it that there's probably multiple options. There are two options of how we could approach this text. Option one is that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish as the text reads. That is option one. Or option two, perhaps this could be a literary device to represent a completely unexpected rescue, perhaps picked up by another vessel 
saved by a passing ship larger and safer than the one Jonah was on. Personally, I'm not 100% sure of what actually happened that day, uh, although I do lean towards the first option. Uh, reading a commentary by Douglas Sturt, who's no uh, Stuart, who's no lightweight, he writes these words on Jonah. He says, The wording of the first sentence is precise. The Lord is in control. The fish simply does what it's told. The story does not specify what kind of fish it was, how Jonah could have lived inside it, or the answers to any other such queries. The Lord can easily toss the wind around to make a storm when he wants, miraculously rescuing someone from a drowning from drowning via a fish is no great feat either. But it is not, also, a feat to be described analytically. A miracle is a divine act beyond human replication or explanation. The numerous attempts made in the past to identify the sort of fish that could have kept Jonah alive is misguided. How would he have Jonah even known? Can we assume that he caught a glimpse of the fish as it turned back to sea after vomiting him out on shore? How much could he have understood of what happened to him when he was swallowed? These questions have no answer. To ask them is to ignore the way the story is told. What sorts of fish people can live inside is not an interest to the scripture. And so I guess regardless of the dynamics of this scene, the point of it remains exactly the same, either way you read it. Whilst running away from God, Jonah is provided by God a moment of unexpected rest, of salvation, as an act of gentle kindness for the wayward prophet. And it's here in this space that Jonah does one positive thing. He, uh, he prays to God. His prayer is interesting. Uh, at no point does Jonah admit fault. At no point does Jonah seek forgiveness. But he does res uh, recognize the rescuing hand of God in his life. Chapter 2, verse 7, we read this. As my life was fading away, I remembered Yahweh, which is a word for God. My prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forsake faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation is from the Lord. Whilst we don't have time to really pull apart this prayer from Jonah, um, it is fair to say it is a conflicted prayer. Why I say that is as you read through it in chapter 2, it is filled with all the right words. Yep. You, if you grew up in church, you'll always know the right answer to anything is Jesus, God, Bible, right? So you always got those three on hand. All the right answers, all the right words. Uh, that's like Jonah's prayer. It has all the right words. But it is weighed down with an air of blindness or hypocrisy. But nonetheless, it is a moment of slight change for Jonah. And the God commands the fish to vomit him onto dry ground. And that's the end of scene two. Scene one, scene two. Scene three opens in a bustling metropolis. Uh, it is the city of Nineveh. And the key to this scene is its ridiculous simplicity. Jonah's message is the shortest and simplest message of all the prophets. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. 
And what is the response of the king of Nineveh? Well, let's pause there. Because remember the last time someone went to the king of a superpower in the scriptures, an enemy of God's people, and asked him to repent? Uh, That king took the title Pharaoh. And it's recorded for us in Exodus. And his heart was hardened. And he fought tooth and nail to hang on to his power. And for five whole chapters, he says to Moses, no. That is the expected literary shape that we bring with us into Jonah. But that is not what happens here. The king of Nineveh hears the message and he immediately repents. That means he turns around, he changes, he responds. And in fact, the city does that first and then the king follows. There is a ridiculous simplicity in this city scene. Those who are enemies of God hear a message of judgment and they turn to God and they find compassion. Chapter 3, verse 10, then God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, and so God relented from the disaster he had threatened, and he did not do it. End of scene three, the bustling, repenting city. Scene four, it's our final scene. And we find ourselves now on a hilltop, or we're told a grassy patch just outside the city. Jonah is now sitting by himself. And you notice the rhythm in this narrative. Chaos, and then rest and reflection. Chaos, and then rest and reflection. Although to be fair, this grassy hilltop, whilst peaceful, is anything but restful. Because Jonah is furious. Uh, He is seething. And it's here in the final scene that we get an insight as to why Jonah went to Tarshish in the first place and why he had checked out on the boat. Chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to anger, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. This is Jonah's response. I knew it. I knew you would have compassion on them. And Jonah's request from God, verse 3, and now, Lord, I mean, this is serious stuff. Please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Um, I've heard it said that resentment, the experience of resentment, uh, is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. But here in chapter 4, the poison of resentment is very real to Jonah. I would rather die than admit that your compassion extends to everyone. I would rather die in my anger and my hurt and my resentment, which, to be honest, are all things we feel like we can control. I can control who I'm angry at. and I would rather die than live humbled by your love. I would rather die than admit I don't have the right to declare who is good and who is bad, who I can hate and who I can love. And I guess on one level, Jonah was spot on. 
Because if you and I are going to be shaped by God himself, which is the experience of Christianity, then part of us will need to die. Uh, It's the part of us that is judge, jury, and executioner. It is the part of us that believes we have the right to say who is deserving and who is not. It's the part of us that actually believes, and you would never say it to anyone, unless you're sort of on an online forum, but it's the part of you that actually believes in some small way that you are better than that other person, whoever they are. I guess this is why Jesus said to all those who will follow him, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. True Christian faith is incredibly humbling. You see, the God who Jonah is so angry at is the same God who sent his son Jesus into this world. True Christian faith is incredibly humbling because as a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus. And Jesus died for his enemies to reunite them with God. And that means he died for your your enemies to reunite them with God. But here we are on the hilltop with Jonah And that is way too much for him. We're told in verse 5 of chapter 4 that he's sitting on the hilltop waiting to see if, if maybe, just maybe, God's compassion isn't as deep as he fears it is. And maybe, just maybe, Nineveh will be destroyed. And so, just like God provided the fish in the second scene, in this final scene, God provides a vine. And we read in uh, verse 6 of chapter 4, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy with the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I was dead. And here is how the whole book of Jonah concludes. The Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprung up overnight, it died overnight. But Nineveh, has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about this great city? That's the end of the book. Real love and transformation really do often go hand in hand. And uh, I guess no matter where you are on your own journey of faith, Following the God who is revealed to us by Jesus involves powerful shifts over time in our stance towards the world around us. There are plenty of people that you don't like 
whom God shows compassion and love towards. People you may despise because of their moral corruption. People you may hate because they have wronged you. People you may condemn because you deem them intolerant. People you may be angry at because they belittle your faith. There are plenty of people you don't like whom God shows compassion and love towards. And the point of this narrative is to leave us sitting with Jonah on that hillside. The exact same place that Jesus leaves us at the end of the parable of the lost son. In that parable, we're left with the elder son who is outside the party, who refuses to go in because his younger son has found favor with the father. We're in that exact same space, but we're Old Testament. We're with Jonah on the hillside. And we're left asking, the narrative encourages you and I to ask the question, what right do I have to be angry at a God who offers forgiveness to everyone? What would it mean for me to really believe that God's compassion extends to everyone and allow that to shape my stance towards the world around me and allow that to shape my stance towards the people around me? I think on a very shallow reading of the book of Jonah, it's an easy book to read through, to have a fun narrative, and to walk away sort of shaking your finger at Jonah. Oh, he's so silly, as if you just trust in God's love. But when you sit in this narrative and you sit with Jonah in each of the scenes, it becomes incredibly confronting. Because it is a message that says... God loves your enemies. And then there is a deep internal conflict that we each face. It is a humbling prospect, isn't it? If we're to follow it with an open heart and a trust in God, I guess it involves the killing of self-righteousness. And the replacing of it with a trust in Jesus' righteousness on our behalf, which is an invitation for everyone. But this is indeed the great power and beauty of real Christian faith. It changes you over a lifetime. At least that's our hope and prayer. And I guess that is why we meet together here as a church family every Sunday. And a whole bunch of us will be meeting midweek perhaps to reflect on this very book. We do it because we believe that as we grow up as children of God, hopefully we kind of become more like our Heavenly Father. We get shaped by our Heavenly Father. And that means we become more compassionate. And the resentment that we have to certain people in our life starts to fade because we start dealing with it and recognizing that that person that I hate so much is loved by God. And so what do I do with that? How can I start moving towards a shift in my own attitude towards them? And it is a transformational life journey 
following this sort of God. And so we come together today to remind ourselves of the very God who we worship and to be encouraged as we move out this afternoon and on Monday into our workplace or with our family or with our flatmates or what it would look like for us to keep growing up as children of this God. We help each other out. We're honest and open. We pray for each other and uh, we seek God's spirit change in our life. And that's all very big and at points scary, depending on where you're at in your journey at the moment. And so I want to just finish with um, a word of prayer. And uh, it's going to be a prayer that just asks God to help us, to just to know how wide and long and deep his love really is. So let me pray. Um, Lord and Father, we ask now that in this moment, Uh, Whatever you have brought to our mind and our hearts through the work of your spirit, uh, that might be an idea, it might be a truth about you and your character, there might be an actual person who has come into our mind. Lord, whatever it is that you have given us uh, this afternoon in this time and space, I pray that you'll give us the courage to meditate on it, to act on it, if if that is what is called. Give us that courage to trust in your goodness, your compassion, and please shape us to be more like you, for you are good. So thank you for this word in Jonah, and lead us forward this day and this week. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.